Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Well, are you proud of yourselves, you mag extremists? Look what you did to Hunter Biden and uh, the big guy. Look, look what you're putting them through. Uh, Hunter Biden yesterday choosing not to show up for his deposition before a House Oversight Committee. Well, kind of not show up. He showed up, but he didn't go inside for the deposition. He just had a little impromptu press conference. Not really impromptu. It was obviously quite staged. And it was on the Senate with side. Prepared so remarks. It, was, it was on the Senate side, so it was away from the House. He's made mistakes. But he did it his way. I'm here today to acknowledge that I've made mistakes in my life and wasted opportunities and privileges I was afforded. For that, I'm responsible. For that, I'm accountable. And for that, I'm making amends. If you um, sort of felt a butt coming on, that was on the mark. But I'm also here today to correct how the MAGA right has portrayed me for their political purposes. I am first and foremost a son, a father, a brother, and a husband from a loving and supportive family. Baby daddy. I'm proud to have earned degrees from Georgetown University and Yale Law School. I'm proud of my legal career and business career. I'm proud of my time serving on a dozen different boards of directors. And I'm proud of my efforts to forge global business relationships. 312-642-5600, turnkey Depro answer line, 64636, type in DA, then a quick moment. And you know that moment in the movie where it's like, you had me at hello, in Jerry Maguire? This was that moment for me. Republicans do not want an open process where Americans can see their tactics, expose their baseless inquiry, or hear what I have to say. What are they afraid of? I'm here. I'm ready. I'm here. I'm ready. Is he really here? Is he really ready, Dan? Um, there was a fun parts of this where she channeled, I thought, um, different... Um, Classic riffs, for example. Uh, see if you can pick this one up. This is um, about the humanity of the uh, hillbillies from Wilmington. For six years, MAGA Republicans, including members of the House committees who are in a closed-door session, session right now, have impugned my character, invaded my privacy, attacked my wife, my children, my family, 
and my friends. They've ridiculed my struggle with addiction. They've belittled my recovery. And they have tried to dehumanize me, all to embarrass and damage my father, who has devoted his entire public life to service. See, there I thought that was uh, Shylock from Merchant of Venice. If you prick the blind Bidens, do they not bleed? I got to tell you, there are millions of Americans with addiction that don't act like that. I, I'm so sick. Of, I, no, he didn't. You know, he, he exploiting his own addiction as a shield. There's millions of Americans who don't leverage power, political power Man. for influence. No, no, no. They don't deny their own children or blame some illegal Mexican He's for dropping things. a load of gu- loaded gun in a garbage can. And a lot of Americans and struggling artists don't get their exhibits in Soho the first time that they release paintings. So stop with He's, this addiction thing. I'm done with it. He, so we, we went from, I would say, like uh, Truman Capote mm-hmm. to, you know, I mean, you know, I, obviously the Hunter's an artist, so I want to give him his credit and um, assert that he's channeling other great artists. Truman Capote, I'm, I'm many things. I'm a drug addict. I'm a homosexual. I'm a genius. That's sort of with a, a little bit of what you were getting there. And then he moved to Shylock. And then, and then I thought uh, this was... So this was a nice touch, too. Then he goes, so, you know, you got to introduce some of the um, great political moments as well. And so then he goes full Joseph Welch before uh, or during the McCarthy hearings. Here's uh, Hunter Biden doing his Joseph Welch impersonation. There is no fairness or decency in what these Republicans are doing. They have lied over and over about every aspect of my personal and professional life. So much so that their lies have become the false facts believed by too many people. No matter how many times it is debunked, they continue to insist that my father's support of Ukraine against Russia is the result of a non-existent bribe. They displayed naked photos of me during an oversight hearing. Keep your clothes on. And they have taken the light of my dad's love. The light of my dad's love for me and presented it as darkness. They have no shame. Have you no shame? Have you no shame. Wonderful, wonderful. That Boy, is that's the a, line. He, he packed a lot into uh, that six minutes. Uh, Tony, Southside, you're on Chicago's Morning News. Hey, good morning, Dan and Amy, my lamb. So, Dan, I'm asking you this question because you're kind of a movie buff. Wasn't the bad lieutenant played by Harry Keitel also a father? Wasn't he also a father, a husband, and a son? Yeah, I think he was. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for the call, Tony. You know, it was a little bit of – so I thought Truman Capote. I I didn't think bad lieutenant, but that's a good uh, reference as well. Um, I also thought maybe a little Pat Robertson, actually the spoof of Pat Robertson on Saturday Night Live when he ran for president. Oh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, Al Franken uh, did the uh, Robertson impersonation, and he did the whole, you know, I think it's a little unfair to call me a televangelist. I've been many things. I babysat. I mowed lawns. I've done homework. Uh, I've done like it all. Yeah, the it's- whole you know, try he's he's being dehumanized by the mean MAGA extremists. That was the gist of it. And that we've destroyed the light of his dad's love. Think of how deep that is. 
I mean, he should be held in contempt of Congress. Is he getting arrested anytime soon? I mean, think about Eric Trump and Donald Trump Jr. They went to every subpoena. They were questioned for hours. Donald Trump Jr. spent 42 hours about the stupid Russian collusion. Steve Bannon didn't show up. They got him. Roger Stone didn't come up. They showed up with 30 armed men and a, a tank and a helicopter. Why isn't he behind bars this morning? Greg, Good morning, Dan and Amy. Good morning, Dan and Amy. Thanks for, thanks for taking this call, Dan. Okay, all of you people that are driving in the car right now are probably getting this story now on a level of detail for the first time. As Dan and Amy will be covering, what was about to happen yesterday was a private deposition, which is standard normal procedure, meaning that it is purposely not done publicly because these the, the Comer Commission has got tons of stuff that you people are going to be appalled about once you start getting the details, meaning hundreds of thousands of dollars of payments from both uh, the Ukraine and China and other countries that are coming through a banking system. And perhaps some of you may not know that there's something called SARS. And what SARS are is when there is illegal money that is drifting through the banking system um, issues a statement that this is funny money and suspicious activity reports. Yeah, we've caught, we've talked about that quite a bit. The banks alerted people to that too. So uh, exactly. So they have all of this stuff that Dan and Amy are about to go and cover throughout the days that are upcoming. But just know that when the Democrats look in the camera and give you all this sob story that there's no evidence and that's going to be their tactic, they are just they're nailed. They got this cold. Thanks. Thanks for the call, Greg. I just want, I, you know, I just let's just ease into this because we got to cover what the Democrats said. We got to cover the legality of it and the uh, judiciousness or lack thereof, both legally and politically, of Hunter Biden choosing to not go to the DEP but to have this uh, sidewalk press conference. We'll get to all that. Yeah, because he gave but Congress just, the middle finger. But all right, let's let, have some let's fun just because I wish. Focus on Hunter. Real quick. It's his moment. I know, but remember when we did that dramatic reading earlier this week, or maybe it was late last week? If I had known what he had sounded like, because we always see him. It's like the Obama girls or Amy Carter. We always saw them, but we never heard him speak, even though Hunter's an adult. We've now, heard Hunter speak. I know, but I just and it's been a while. And his dialect is weird. There's, he talks funny. Is it because of the teeth or what is it? He, something he, about him. He, talk, he talks like the old man, actually. He sort of has the, the same facial expression. If you go back and look at Joe Biden... Uh, from, I don't know, 20 or 30 years ago. It's pretty close. I got a thing. Like, he kind of wants. Bill and uh, Glenn Ellen. Yeah, I have to say, I think we should listen to Hunter Biden because if there was ever an expert in having no shame, I think you would see <laughs> Hunter Biden's picture in that definition because that guy has no shame. So when he says something, I think we should listen when he talks about that. Thanks for the call, Bill. Yeah, he, uh, yes, it, it was pretty... I mean, one of the wonderful uh, aspects of irony in his remarks was the uh, assertion that somebody could actually shame Hunter Biden. Marty in Naperville. Well, a couple of things. First of all, he reads a script as bad as his father does. Uh, and second of all, I don't know what everybody expects. This is a victim society. I mean, he's a victim. Somebody, it's, whoever gave him the dope, whoever the prostitutes were, they, it's their fault. It's our fault. It's Republicans' fault. Everything is everybody's fault. So I don't know what is to be expected. He's just not going to go to any hearings. He's not going to go to any depositions. He's going to read a stupid script. And I, mean, I don't know what everybody expects. Nothing's going to happen to this clown. 
Thanks for the call. I mean, Comer said, we'll do a private deposition like everybody does. I'm sure you've been deposed. I've been deposed. And then we'll do something in the public, what you want. But he gave the big blank you and then got in the car and then went out to lunch. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. This is a full-blown four-alarm holiday emergency here. On AM560. We're going to have the hap, hap, happiest Christmas since Bing Crosby tap dance with Danny and K. The Answer. Only the biggest stories. Only the biggest guests. And only the biggest opinions. This is AM560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We were just reviewing uh, Hunter Biden's performance yesterday. Uh outside the Capitol. And uh, if there are um, any literary references you picked up on or pop culture characters he reminds you, of course, we'll take those all morning. I, in my uh, trenchant analysis, uh, suggested that uh, he started with the Truman Capote on many things, Mm -hmm. which is a good start. Segwaying seamlessly to Shylock's, if you prick the Bidens, do we not bleed? And a strong close with Joseph Welch's Have You No Sense of Decency to Joe McCarthy. Uh, I thought it was a command performance, and I would go see it again. I definitely think he could win a daytime Emmy for that. Um, mine was a little more pedestrian. I felt like, you know, Jerry Maguire. You had the, me I hello. I, I don't get the Jerry Maguire. You, he had, you had, who, he, he's, he's Renee Zellweger. Yes. And he, who's he saying you had me at hello to? Well, because he's like, you've asked where I am. I am here. You had like he was whiny like a chick, yeah. Okay. You know, and then you know Secret the light garden. of my dad's love. You turned the light of my dad's love against me, and that's when he got a little teary eyed too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So well, we got a text message, Dan and Amy. He sounded a little bit like Carol Channing <laughs> to me. <laughs> oh, there's a little bit of that with mm. the the choppers, maybe. Trump. Okay, I can see it that. Just has such a strange dialect. I can't get. I can't get it through. Mm. Uh, now there were some substantive. Uh, well. There's one substantive statement that he made that's particularly relevant to the larger conversation. The thrust of all of this, which is, is Joe Biden guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors? That's what this is all about. Mm-hmm. And Hunter Biden wanted everybody to know he isn't. My father was not financially involved in my business, not as a practicing lawyer, not as a board member of Burisma. Not in my partnership with a Chinese private businessman, not in my investments at home nor abroad, and certainly not as an artist. <laughs> certainly, certainly not as an artist. Yeah. No. Exactly. It is all as an artist because high Democratic donors are the ones who bought his stupid artwork. Uh, he wasn't uh, financially involved, but he was a financial beneficiary. It's uh, artful there. Don't forget, I think he's a Yale Law grad, that Hunter Biden. There's no evidence to support the allegations that my father was financially involved in my business because it did not happen. Right. But, um, you know, I'd love to take Hunter Biden's word for it because he's obviously demonstrated he's trustworthy. But um, the evidence that has been collected raises questions that have not been answered other than with sort of blanket denials. That's not an answer. You have to explain the checks that Joe Biden received. You have to explain a money trail that goes from Hunt, from a Chinese communist business person to Hunter Biden to Joe Biden. You have to explain Jim and Joe Biden, too. It's not just Hunter and uh, the monies that were being transferred between the two since Jim and Hunter were also uh, at least strategic allies 
right. in terms of foreign business dealings. President Button, he flew his son to 15 different countries. And remember, one of his last acts as vice president was to go back to Ukraine. And what did he do? He threatened the prosecutor who was looking into Burisma, who's the board, his son's board that he was on. Uh-huh. And then don't forget this text message. I love I always put in my phone's favorite. January 2016, Hunter Biden to his daughter, Naomi. I hope you all can do what I did and pay for everything for this entire family for 30 years. It's really hard. But don't worry. Unlike Pop, I won't make you give me half of your salary. Right. And this is um, like part of the point himself. here. The, um, the, the not financially involved. Um, that's an irrelevant statement, as Jonathan Turley pointed out. Uh, yesterday in response to uh, this performance. It's irrelevant. Uh, if you are a indirect beneficiary, then you're complicit. And the, the, the other part of this, too, that we've emphasized before in t- discussing this topic, I mean, this is a new or should have known standard, too. This is the reasonable man standard, and particularly the, when the reasonable man is the vice president of the United States and cannot pretend not to understand, have been instructed about the nature of the sensitivity of the position and the ethics that accompany that position in terms of ensuring that you're not being compromised, that you're not doing anything that would uh, jeopardize America in any uh, significant way, particularly for personal gain. And, you know, family gain and personal gain by extension is the same thing. Listen to Turley. You know, the Democrats have been stating that uh, there's no evidence that the president benefited from these payments. That's nonsense. I mean, there are federal cases on bribery and other crimes where the courts have said that payments to family members uh, do constitute benefits legally for those actual criminal charges. And it also applies in impeachment. I represented the last judge impeached by Congress. He was charged uh, with gifts that went to his family. So all of that is just nonsense. The question that we're really looking at going forward is what did the president know and what was his involvement with this influence peddling. There's even Democrats in the media now accept that this was a massive influence peddling operation. They're just arguing that the president really didn't know about it. Well, how do you know? I mean, that's the point of an inquiry. Right. 312-642-5600, turnkey dot pro. Answer line 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. Dan, did you think that that uh, stunt yesterday was effective, what he did? No, I, I think it's going to ensure that, well, I think it's going to be very difficult for him not to be charged with contempt of Congress, but I'll get to that in a second. Okay. Something Turley said, uh, the, the question, you know, they don't know the extent of Joe Biden's involvement, or at least to, they haven't, uh, the Democrats saying there's no evidence. They don't know, or at least they haven't said what they know publicly if they do know something. But but again, you, you can't have your son on Air Force Two and uh, engaged in the way that he was with foreign actors, uh, most of whom were uh, uh, adverse to America. Right. You can't say, I had no knowledge. That doesn't fly. You must have known, or you should have known. You're the fracking vice president of the United States. Don't your Your, your son is going on these trips to apply his uh, trades 
for the his benefit and the entire families that we know from right. the transactions that have been disclosed. And you're going to pretend that you had no idea what was going on. You took no interest. You were compelled to take an interest. It's Come a, on. I don't know who they think they're fooling here. I mean, even Bo's wife, who's a social worker at an elementary school, she got $34,000 randomly. For doing what? So uh, the— and Nine um, other family members, too. It's so weird. The choice that Hunter made to—and uh, and Abby Lowell, his defense attorney, to, uh, to, to do this performance yesterday. Here's Turley's— uh, assessment of that. Even though Washington is known as a theater of the absurd, I've never seen anything like what we saw with Hunter and his lawyers today. I I can't come up with a legal rationale for what they did. I mean, he effectively engaged in legal self-immolation. I mean, you had two choices today. You could go in and testify, you can appear and testify, or you go in and you don't testify. There is no third flavor on this ice cream stand. You don't get to go in front of the Senate and literally mock Congress. And people have said, well, this might not be enforceable because the vote came later. There was an impeachment inquiry going on. The Democrats started an inquiry without a formal vote. There's no requirement for a formal vote. But more importantly, the subpoena came from the Oversight Committee, which has independent subpoena authority. So in my view, he's in flagrant contempt of, of Congress. Mm-hmm. And the contempt of Congress charge. Will, will Hunter be charged with contempt of Congress? Well, this was a question that was put to uh, KJP yesterday, White House spokeshuman. Uh, does the president um, think that uh, people should comply with congressional subpoenas? The president spent a lot of time in Congress, been around Washington a while. Does he believe that congressional subpoenas are something that individual citizens can ignore? I'm just not going to speak to that. <laughs> just not. Uh, are you you want to be more specific yeah, on your I mean, question? You know, just, he's a former senator. He's issued subpoenas in his career. Does he believe that subpoenas gonna, have to be complied? I'm just going to have you speak to the White House counsel on this. I'm just not going to speak to that. Okay. Uh, K- yeah, he should show up. End of next question. Okay, KJP won't uh, answer that, but the good news is she doesn't need to because the big guy's already answered it. He answered it when CNN asked the question about those subpoenaed by the J6 Star Chamber not showing up. And here's what he said. What is his response to this? What does he think of people who are defying these subpoenas? And should the Justice Department prosecute them? And this is what he told us. I hope that the committee goes after them and uh, holds them accountable. Should they be prosecuted by the I, Justice I do, Department? yes. Yeah, they should. They, I hope the committee holds them accountable and they should be prosecuted. And as uh, you mentioned earlier, Amy, Steve Bannon was. Mm-hmm. He was convicted. The he's barrel. been sentenced to four months in prison, and he's uh, appealing that conviction, but he was. And that move, that stunt that Hunter did yesterday, I mean, solidified an impeachment inquiry. It just reeked of entitlement. And he was, and obviously it was a prepared statement written by his lawyer, but it was not. it did nothing to help their cause. Mike and Hammond, Jerome Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, thanks for taking my call, Dan. Yeah, I'm agreeing with uh, Amy on that, that uh, him showing up yesterday did, did Biden ink no favors. But that aside, remember uh, Tony Bobulinski, and when he was interviewed by Tucker Carlson, he said he said he's, he he talked to Jim Biden, and basically, how are you guys getting away with all this? And uh, Jim Biden told him, plausible deniability. Yeah. Plausible deniability. 
I, I, I remember uh, Bobolinsky saying that, but, but here's the problem. I mean, that's a fun thing to say. It's a cute thing to say in conversation. Uh, but the deniability here is implausible, and that's the problem. Well, I agree. Yeah. I agree. But thanks that was the, their whole scheme. Yeah. Well, that this is how – thanks for the call. This is how uh, slipshod the scheme was. Well, of course it was. Look who's writing point, Hunter Biden. This is Wilmington hillbillies. This is not a complicated um, uh, uh, crime family, basically. There's, there's nothing complicated about this. Uh, it's just a, a matter of pulling all of the information together to uh, present a complete picture. But, I mean, right, you heard Turley. I mean, look, everybody knows this was influence peddling. What they're basically saying is, oh, but Joe Biden had nothing to do with it. Well, first of all, that doesn't that doesn't logically follow from what we already know. But there's still, again, many unanswered questions. Um, and secondly, it's not. It's almost not relevant. That defense of he didn't know, even if you could prove he didn't know. Right. That would be that would be gross negligence on an order that would rise to high crimes and misdemeanors, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you can't go out there and say, I have an addiction problem. My daddy loves me and the MAGA people are after me. I mean, that's basically what he did. And thanks. Well, that apparently you can go out there and do well, that. I know, that's what but he did. He's going to have to pay for his wrongdoings. We'll see. He better. Not, well, I mean, maybe, you <laughs> know, on the clock. In, the, in his final judgment. But uh, we'll see about uh, with respect to our. Uh, earthly oh political and legal infrastructure. Do you think he's hiding out in the White House? Glenn in Oakbrook, <laughs> looking for the cocaine. Mm, Glenn in Oakbrook, you're on Chicago's Morning bag. Answer. Good morning, uh, guys. Uh, when Joe Biden was vice president under Obama, and Obama knew all this, why didn't Obama request Joe Biden resign? Well, yeah. Thanks for the call. I mean, you know, to... to willful blindness begets willful blindness i don't know but i mean we know we actually it was interesting right remember trump's first impeachment over the phone call with Zelensky, right and the uh that's when you know burisma was first really raised in a significant way and the biden involvement there and the prosecutor and joe biden's last visit and the statements he made and all that and um there were those uh foreign service officers testing on behalf of the prosecution behalf of congressional Democrats who talked about raising concerns about Hunter's involvement with Burisma uh, while they were in country and the State Department. And who was at the State Department? Oh, right. Hillary. Oh, Hillary was um, And the State Department not taking a particular interest in it. And thus the president not taking a, a particular interest in it. And don't forget, it was Obama who made him the point person for Ukrainian policy and in other places where, interestingly, the Biden hillbillies would follow and set up crony deals, Jim included. Uh, Mike in Kakana, Wisconsin. Yeah. Good morning, Dan Amy. Thanks for taking my call. I think uh, Hunter was channeling Patrick Henry uh, he stood on the steps of the Capitol and shouted, give me Librium or give me meth. <laughs> uh, That's pretty good. I, 
have a text message. <laughs> Dan and Amy Hunter is channeling his 1988 inner Jimmy Swaggart. I have sinned. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I like that caller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mary Kay, Western Springs. Hi, good morning, you two. Um, the gall of these people. I, know. I, I, I mean, don't you think? My God, I listen. I just can't even believe it. So my reference is... Jack Nicholson, you can't handle the truth. All right, that's a terrible Jack terrible. Nicholson impersonation, yeah. but I Sorry, appreciate yes, the reference. Yes, yes. Yeah. Go ahead, you, you say it. You can't. No, no. No, no. I no. don't do Jack. That's not one of my impersonations. I'm don't a Truman Capote get, guy. Um, get the, get um, Frank from Arlington Heights. He'll practice and get on the air and do it really good. No, he there doesn't even go. practice. He just does it off the cuff. Well, yeah. there you go. All right, you guys. Have a good day. Thanks for the call, Mary. I, I mean, that's that's got to be. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I gotta tweet that out. Give me Librium or give me math. <laughs> that's really good, Mike in Wisconsin. Um, and this was fun too. Uh, Peter Ducey brought his dad into it since Hunter brought his dad into oh, it and asked uh, KJP, White House spokeswoman, uh, you yeah. know, did the big guy say, um, you know. You should comply with the subpoena. Thank you. Thanks, Green. Uh, you said that President Biden was familiar with what his son was going to say on Capitol Hill. If I called my dad and said, I am about to violate a congressional subpoena, he'd probably say, son, you shouldn't do that. Was there any attempt by President Biden to talk Hunter out of it today? You're going to call your dad Steve? No, oh, she's Daddy. so happy. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um... I don't have anything else to add. The president was familiar with what um, Hunter was going to say today. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, look, he's proud of his son. He and the first lady are proud of his son, how he's rebuilding his life back. He's going to focus on what is needed on the American people. Hunter, and I've said this many times, as a private citizen. And so certainly I would have to refer you to... Um, uh, to his representatives. I'm just not going to get into private conversations. Um, Proud of him. He's going to take down the whole Biden empire. I have a follow-up question. Um, yes, two, actually. Two-part follow-up question, Karine Jean-Pierre. Uh, what exactly are they proud of with respect to Hunter Biden? And um, in addition to that, is there anything Hunter Biden can do that he hasn't already done that would leave them in a position where they're not proud of him? Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. This is a full-blown four-alarm holiday emergency here. On AM 560. We're going to have the hap, hap, happiest Christmas since Bing Crosby tap dance with Danny and K. The Answer. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, signaturebank.bank. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. Signature Bank. 
This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. There has been a a big legal development in the uh, Trump indictment that uh, relates to January 6th, that case. And it's because of a decision the Supreme Court has uh, taken to uh, grant cert to a a, a appeal made by a Jan 6 defendant and and, uh, convict. We'll get to that in a second. Sort of the segue into that is this exchange that uh, Vivek Ramaswamy had with Abby Phillip at the CNN Town Hall in Iowa last night. Abby Phillip, of course, moderating. Ramaswamy getting his turn with the Town Hall. And she brought up what uh, he said at the last debate about January 6th. Just talking, he went on this riff, you'll recall, about all the things that the government has lied to us about, particularly in the last several years. And he included January 6th, saying... You know, what I thought when I was in the private sector paying sort of passing attention and what I understand now that I'm more steeped in electoral politics are two very different things. And Abby Phillip uh, dutifully, I'm sure per contract at CNN, attempted to intercede again and again and again to derail what Ramaswamy had to say. And that only served to endear Ramaswamy to the audience. If you had told me that January 6th was in any way an inside job, the subject of government entrapment, I would have told you that was crazy talk. Fringe conspiracy theory nonsense. I can tell you now, having gone somewhat deep in this, it's not. I mean, the reality is this. We do have a government, first of all, we have to acknowledge that has lied to us systematically over the last several years about the origin of COVID-19, about the Hunter Biden laptop that we were told was false by 51 CIA experts and otherwise before we now know that it was true. You can go straight down the list, the Trump-Russia disinformation collusion hoax, all of it. Now we come to January 6th. The reality is we know that there were federal law enforcement agents in that field. We don't know how many. I think it's Mr. a shame, if, if I may finish just answering well, this, let me this, just, is, this is really I, I'm important gonna, I'm going to go ahead and interrupt you here because, because you're I saying know this, that there establishment were, doesn't approve of this you're message. saying I know that there this, were federal we should agents, be able to talk about this. you're saying that there were federal this is, agents This is important to talk about. You are saying there were federal agents in the crowd on, on, yes. on January 6th. Yep. There is no evidence that there were federal agents in the crowd on January so, 6th. So why before Congress, when pressed on what the number was, they didn't say there were none. They just couldn't so say how many there were. So you're saying that there's no, that you have not seen evi- any evidence so that we've there seen were. Multiple, and so we've seen multiple informants were. suggesting that there were. We know people were, we know people were FBI informants who were asked to Is do there this. any evidence? May I just come back and question Well, let me clarify. I know this is very uncomfortable for you. I'm going to clarify my question I know this is an uncomfortable issue for many people, but we have to do the truth I'm going to clarify my question because I want to make sure that you understand what I'm asking. I understand this. And I told you, I was where working three years the, ago. I'm where not there is now. the evidence? Yes. Where is the evidence that the government had a plot, so an inside I, job? But no, no, no I'm going to tell you what an inside job is because I'm not going to. I'm not violent on January 6th. Where I'm not going to let you put words in my that? mouth. I'm going to put my words in my mouth. And I'm going to tell you what, what I mean by that. Where is the evidence that the government was involved Entrapment. in planning or executing okay. January 6th? Where so I'm going to give you I'm going to give you hard facts. And, and if I may, Abby, I know this is going to be a little uncomfortable, but we're going to we're going to go through this and you can and you can you can push Just back on it. For after the evidence. That. And you can push back on that. And let's do this fairly. Why did they suppress footage 
of now what's been released, 200 hours of footage of shooting rubber bullets into that crowd, shooting tear gas into that crowd. You didn't see that before. You saw what the response was to that. Uh, now you see footage Ms. coming out of actually rolling out the red carpet for Capitol Mr. Police allowing people in. Again, right through the front the vast door. majority I mean, of that footage video evidence should have been released shows, before, Abby. Mr. Ramaswamy, the vast majority of the before. footage shows and my deeper police officers is this. being overrun and, and I want to talk about one more by violent really rioters. That's yeah, I'm going to give you, hard, give you some hard facts. Of it shows. So what, here's what entrapment you can't is. Cherry pick. I'm not cherry picking. You if I may finish, Abby. If I may finish, Abby. I'm not cherry picking. Examples. To the contrary. To the country. You know who cherry picked? You know who cherry picked? The government That is what happened The government cherry picked 12 hours of footage. When there was 200 hours of the cherry picking was the government, not me. Release so, the whole thing. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro, text line. It's a nice exchange, even as obstreperous as Abby Phillips was there, because it underscores what you're up against if you ask questions, if you raise doubts about the official story. And... Um, just to be clear, when Ramaswamy said inside job, he sort of later clarified that to say he doesn't mean the government planned and executed it. He means that there were informants in the crowd there, whether it was federal agents or a state or, or, or Capitol Police or some combination of the two actual um, uh, undercover officers and agents or just assets of said agencies. They instigated. They entrapped. That's the assertion he's making. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. You could also reach us on our text line, which is up and running, 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. And the the, the, the pushback I would have to Abby Phillip if she would uh, just slow her roll for five seconds. You know, where, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? Why are you so uncurious? You're supposed to be a reporter. It, it, it doesn't strike you as odd that Christopher Ray has no idea if and if there were how many FBI agents were uh, there on January 6th. That, that doesn't strike you as odd. The lack of disclosure. You're, you're not interested in transparency from the, the most powerful law, domestic law enforcement agency in the country. That, that doesn't interest you. And you're a reporter. So equal justice under the law, any concerns that the most powerful domestic law enforcement agency in the country would cross the line or would not be forthright with the American people about their tactics or that uh, the Department of Justice, the most powerful domestic uh, you know, the attendant to the most powerful domestic law enforcement agency in the country, DOJ and FBI, obviously interconnected. It doesn't concern you that somebody's due process rights may have been violated, that prosecutors may have failed to disclose exculpatory evidence. They may, may have violated discovery rules and therefore violated a defendant's right to a fair trial. That, none of that interests you. You, ha you have only what the J6 Star Chamber, singular in its preordained conclusions, only what they chose to reveal only the questions they chose to ask. And yet there's all this other footage. And yes, there are, uh, as Ramaswamy was getting to, you're, you're cherry picking some and I'm cherry picking some. So um, 
but only we I we're only supposed to focus on your cherry picking. Yes, there were instances where people acted violently and illegally, and those people should be prosecuted. And very few people, I, I don't actually, I can't even point to a person has said anything otherwise in my, in quote unquote MAGA world, whatever that is. Certainly on this show. But but what about the questions? What about the escorting around the Capitol? And what about those people who didn't act violently and were escorted in being charged just as people who did act violently? And there was a grandma with cancer. She had to spend three days in jail. And all she did was walk in. She was one of the people, you know, the velvet robes that was looking around like, oh, this is nice. Well, the the point here is, I mean, Abby, do you really have a handle on the hundreds and hundreds of cases that the Department of Justice has brought? Have you poured through them? And um, considered that maybe some things are happening that shouldn't be happening. Maybe some Americans' rights are being violated. Maybe there's overreach here. None of that is of interest to you. Everything that the Department of Justice and the FBI and the Capitol Police and the House and Senate, that would be McConnell and Pelosi and their sergeants at arms, and the the the. Uh, the, the 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 information that uh, the Capitol Police Chief at the time, Sun Stephen Sund, has provided an interview with Tucker Carlson and elsewhere. None of that's of interest to you either. All the strange things he described that day in terms of um, not consistent with protocol for uh, an event at the Capitol like this, per his years of experience and in interacting with federal law enforcement uh, and interacting with the sergeants at arms in the respective chambers and so forth. No, no I'm completely. Uncurious about all of that. All I'm going to do is repeat whatever the J6 Star Chamber said. And I don't want to see anything and I don't want to hear anything else. And you're a reporter? I mean, this is why it may be useful for Ramaswamy and at least DeSantis to do that CNN debate, that unsanctioned CNN debate after the new year and before the Iowa caucus, just to do this, just to do what Ramaswamy is trying to do to Abby Phillip and to CNN on behalf of whoever wants to tune in for that. In fact, I would give advance notice. You better come prepared, Abby Phillip or Jake Tapper or or, uh, Dana Bash or whoever. You better come prepared because I'm debating you. We're going, to t- we're going to pick the topics I want to talk about. We're going to talk about CNN's coverage, and we're going to lay it bare for whoever wants to tune in on your coverage of the Russian collusion, on your coverage of J6, on your coverage of COVID, and everything else under the sun that I want to talk about. Because you're uh, basically as much uh, 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 of an institution as we are running against, as is the Democrat Socialist Party, since you serve as their communications operation. It's an important moment, and it's becoming more important with each passing hour. Supreme Court yesterday agreed to hear an appeal brought by a man charged with offenses related to Jan 6. The justices will hear the case brought by defendant Joseph Fisher, who is seeking to dismiss a charge accusing him of obstructing an official proceeding, the certification by Congress of President Biden's victory. Right. So that's this is this is mission critical. It deals with Federal Criminal Code 18 U.S.C. 15 C. 12. 15, excuse me, 15 12 C. 2. 18 U.S.C. 15 12 C. 2. 15 12 C. 2 for the purpose of our discussion. 
which criminalizes any effort to corruptly obstruct, influence, or impede an official proceeding, can result in prison sentences for up to 25 years. 1512C2. Well, that's what President Trump is charged with, in part, with respect to January 6th. And that's why, because the Supreme Court has decided to take up this Fisher case, the uh, case against Trump, the trial against Trump has been stayed. Background here. Because I think there is a good chance that uh, that statute uh, is those convictions under that statute will be overturned and those charges against Trump will be dismissed because they should be. Right. And here's the backstory. 15 C 15 uh, 12 C two. Was passed by Congress in 2002 in response to the Enron scandal. To bring felony charges against uh, and now it's being used to bring felony charges against Jan six defendants. This is um, was was passed with the intention of dealing with financial crimes. 2002, it was part of the 2002 Sarbanes-Oxley Act. It was meant to close a loophole in other obstruction laws related to the destruction of evidence, but left open to interpretation the terms corruptly and official proceeding, quote-unquote. This is not the first time this has been used or attempted to be used, particularly against Trump. When uh, Special Counsel Robert Mueller investigated Trump, for violating 1512C2 as part of the probe into the Russian collusion allegation. In the second volume of Mueller's report on the investigation, he enumerated multiple instances where Trump allegedly violated 1512C2. Mueller concluded Trump's behavior in office met the statute's uh, opaque language. Um, He did not refer Trump to the Justice Department on the obstruction count, even though he suggested He should be investigated accordingly. And then Barr disagreed with Mueller's assessment and decided not to charge Trump. But it was an indication of their interpretation of 1512 C2 for the purposes of getting Trump and. Well, others, they couldn't have anticipated January 6th defendants, but that's what they're used. And the 1512 C2 has been used, according to Julie Kelly, in more than 300 convictions. So if this goes away, so do hundreds of convictions, as well as these charges against Trump. In fact, the QAnon shaman. Who's running for Congress in Arizona, by the way. 1512 C2. 1512 C2. There is, uh, at the uh, appellate level, there was sort of a split decision on the applicability of 1512 C2 in this case, which is in part why the court's taking the high court's taking it up. But um, uh, I want part of the, the uh, dissent judge, Karen Henderson, who's a George W. Bush appointee. She uh, said she criticized her colleagues who uh, let this stand for the purposes of uh, uh, prosecuting a J six defendants. She called um, her colleagues. eye popping sweep quote, of what rises to corrupt conduct. She argued any unlawful benefit 
that any unlawful benefit another factor when considering whether someone acted corruptly must involve some personal or professional gain outside of simply wanting one's preferred candidate to remain in office. Quoting her, none of the evidence comes close to establishing at all, much less beyond a reasonable doubt, that Robertson, who was uh, somebody who had appealed his conviction under the same theory, that Robertson acted with the intent to obtain an unlawful benefit for himself or another other than getting his preferred candidate in office. Henderson supported vacating Robertson's conviction and modifying his prison sentence accordingly. Defense attorneys, uh, that was a two-to-one ruling at the appellate level, and so then they filed this Fisher case. So, I mean, this is... Uh, number one, it slows down the January 6th, Jack Smith's January 6th prosecution of Trump and that trial. Number two, you could see those charges dismissed and charges that uh, and the and, and the convictions as well as sentences of uh, hundreds of J6 defendants either washed away or reduced, you know, depending on whether or not they've been convicted of other charges as well. So, um, you know, in terms of the the full picture of January 6th and everything that's transpired since in terms of the FBI's conduct past and past to current and the DOJ's conduct past to current, this is still very much in flux. Uh, Brad in West Loop. Yeah, hi. Um, Thanks for playing that clip with um, Abby Phillips. I didn't watch it, but. You know, just in my mind, hearing it this morning, my impression was um, Abby Phillips with her hands over her ears going, la, 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 la. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the call. She didn't want to make it look too obvious, so she didn't do that. She can't let the words get out. No. Yeah, she can't let those words get out. She can't let somebody um, offer their view and and provide explanation. It's not like Ramaswamy is a shrinking violet, like he wasn't going to provide detail to support the contention he's offering. And then she could respond. But no, no, no. You can't even let the argument be uttered. Jay in New Lenox. Hi, Dan and Amy. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to comment on the fact that I think the American people sometimes forget about um, when they're in these inquiries with Congress that uh, you know, sometimes it's more important about what they don't say. You know, when she, when she, uh, when Abby tells Ramaswamy that, you know, where's your evidence that there were FBI agents in the crowd, the fact that they can't answer that there were anybody in the crowd is an indication that, you know, what are you talking about? I can walk around anywhere with my phone. You know exactly where I am. So how can you say, well, we don't know if there was any FBI agents in the crowd when you're, when you're questioned, if they were there, you know exactly who was there and who wasn't there. I mean, just uh, Ramaswamy brings up some really valid points, uh, however you feel about them. And and I think that the American people need to wake up and, and realize sometimes you get your answer on what they don't say, not necessarily what they do say. Well, exactly. Thanks for the call, Jay. That's what I said. It's, I mean, Ramaswamy or somebody should say, why don't you want to know? Why don't you want to know if there were any uh, feds on the ground or fed informants, you know, fed assets on the ground at Jane Six? Why don't you want to know? Senators want to know. They keep asking Christopher Wray and he keeps dodging them. I want to know. I'll tell you I'll tell you why I want to know. 
if you tell me why you don't want to know. Frank in St. Charles. Yeah, what do you think of these people? I have one in my family who thinks that that whole crowd, the thousands of people that showed up, went there to protest peacefully. But there was a couple FBI people in there saying, we're going in, we're going in. And they had total influence over that whole crowd, and they basically caused it. Is that crazy? That, that's not what I'm saying. Well, that's what but, some people are saying. Well, I'm not. Okay. Well, sure. Some people are saying a lot of things. Uh, I think we just uh, explained, as we have before, there were some people that can, that clearly broke the law based on the video footage, and they should be prosecuted. There was there was no excuse for any violence that day. And, um, you know, yes, if somebody said we're going to go do something that I knew was improper just because they're saying and I'm not, you know, I have agency and, and other people have agency. However, um, you know, the, the, the level of the activity is still a bit unclear to me because we do have entrapment laws for a reason. I mean, and so that is a legal defense. So and actually it's, it's also a crime the uh, law enforcement official who would engage in entrapment. So the, that's that's part of the law, too. Right. So we should be interested in upholding that part of the law, just as we are interested in upholding the part of the law that deals with people who destroy property or assault a police officer or assault anyone else for that matter. Right. I think so. So, no, I don't think um, two feds undercover uh, we're able to galvanize uh, hundreds of people, maybe thousands, to uh, storm the Capitol. But we also have no idea because we don't even know if there were any feds there. Right, Frank? Because Christopher Ray says, well, uh, I, I can't I don't know and I can't tell you. <laughs> well, which is it? You know, and you can't tell me, or you know, and you won't tell me or you don't know. So you can't tell me. You feel like Christopher Ray is operating on the level with you? This is Chicago's Morning Answer. This is a full-blown four-alarm holiday emergency here. On AM 560. We're going to have the hap, hap, happiest Christmas since Bing Crosby tap dance with Danny and K. The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM 560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Mike Gallagher is a congressman from north of the Cheddar Curtain, Wisconsin, of course. He also uh, is chairman of that House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. And he's a Marine Corps veteran. He writes in the Wall Street Journal, The rapidly diminishing faith in the military threatens to undermine support for defense spending as young people are now twice as likely as those over 65 to oppose increases in such spending. This is a growing problem for military struggling to address an unprecedented recruitment crisis. Willingness to serve is six times as great among potential recruits who have a great deal of confidence in the military as among those who have less confidence. That stands to reason. But confidence in the armed forces among 18 to 29-year-olds has cratered from 87% five years ago to 64% this year, according to surveys. 
It's down 10 percentage points from last year. Uh, he uh, goes on to add compositional differences among generations help explain some of these divisions, but the role of social media can't be overlooked. According to Pew Research, a third of 18 to 29-year-olds get their news from TikTok, compared to, say, 3% of those 65 and older. And what are they getting on TikTok? You know, Osama bin Laden's 2002 letter to America and other Chinese communist propaganda, in part. Something else I would say contributes to it is all the attention this is getting, including on social media, but also in old corporate media, in terms of where America is uh, aiding war efforts, Middle East and Ukraine, maybe some 18 to 29-year-olds are also looking at the policies of this administration and saying, I want to be a part of that on the firing line. I, I want to be uh, tasked by generals to read genderqueer and learn how to be an anti-racist from Lloyd Austin and then be deployed over the Middle East and have the civilian political authority not have my back when Iranian proxies start launching rockets in my direction. I'll give you an example of what I mean. Matt Miller is a spokeshuman for the State Department. Listen to what he had to say the other day about the reports, and we brought these to you from the beginning of this, from shortly after October 7th, the Hamas terrorist attack. Listen to what he had to say about America underwriting terrorism as we're also supporting Israel. And this is through this UN Relief Works Agency. They are, I will say, as I, as I said a moment ago, um, actually they're on the front lines. Understaffed, putting their lives at risk to get food, water, medicine to children, to babies, to civilians. So we absolutely support the work that they're doing. Okay, in light of that Jerusalem Post report of 100 Hamas terrorists confirmed to have graduated from UNRWA schools, what level of terrorist involvement with UNRWA will it take to motivate President Biden to condemn the UNRWA terrorism? So, so we always condemn terrorism, and I think that's pretty clear just based on what you hear me say from this podium every day and what you've heard me say about Hamas since October 7th. Um, but, but I do want to reiterate what I said about the life-saving work that UNRWA is doing uh, and how important it is that that work not just continue, but that it be expanded. We would welcome other um, uh, countries increasing their levels of support to UNRWA because we really do think the work they're doing uh, is essential. So we condemn terrorism, but we underwrite it by providing money to UNRWA, the Relief Works Agency, Relief Works Agency, UN Relief Works Agency, who apparently is a, an incubator for terrorism in the region because they're captive to the Hamas-controlled, at least it used to be, Hamas-controlled Gaza Strip. What? Doing the same thing in Iran. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh? And, and, Funding and, our enemies. And I want to be a part of this. If if I'm too confused to understand what I would be doing and who I'd be doing it for if I were to enlist, then why would I enlist? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Doug Bondo, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, former special assistant to President Reagan and author of Foreign Follies, America's New Global Empire. Doug, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Happy to be on. So, I mean, you wrote recently about this, too. You know, why join the military, um, given the current uh, environment and 
uh, foreign policy posture of the United States. I mean, what you, you describe, you know, sort of your um, under your channeling the understandable skepticism of those who would be of age and 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 uh, otherwise qualified who are choosing who are not choosing that path. Well, that's right. I mean, the military faces a real challenge. Part of the problem are things like uh, you know young young people being overweight and not uh, not physically able to serve. But you have to wonder if you're coming of age. One of the things that we find in surveys is that families, you know, who the members who've been in the military are less likely to recommend that uh, family members go into the military. And that's a change because historically that's one of the best, you know, recruiting, you know, systems for America is whether it be a father or you know, a mother, an uncle, whoever, if suddenly they've been in the military and they're saying, well, I'm not so sure that's good for you in the future, that's a real problem. But look, if I was a young person, I'd be looking at some of these places we've gone and wonder what on earth, you know, we're here for 20 years and you know, look what happened. And, you know, we're, we're sitting in Syria doing I don't know what and having the missiles come in on us. That, you know, how does this make any sense? You look over the last 20 years and say, I don't see a lot of good that's come out of this for America. Why should I put my life on the line? Then add to it the things you were mentioning, the question of you know, social engineering. I mean, if you have social engineering at the Department of, I don't know, HUD, you know, Housing and Urban Development, I, you might screw some stuff up, but you don't get people killed. But, you, you know, you worry about social engineering when it comes to the military. You can have extraordinarily negative consequences. Well, what about, I mean, do you think Ronald Reagan is rolling over in his grave when he heard Dick Durbin say that he wants to make it possible for illegal immigrants to join the U.S. military and then become citizens. I think Reagan would be kind of horrified. I mean, this is just not an administration that you perceive as, you know, kind of you know making American service personnel stand up and and feel proud. And if you're going to put people's lives on the line, they need to have confidence in the civilian leadership. They need to have confidence. That you know, if their lives are going to be risked, it's going to be you know for something good. Quite honestly, I mean, Reagan could do that. I think Reagan. I mean, the confidence. I, one of the issues I worked on with him was military manpower. I mean, this was somebody who really, I think, you know, set the stage for you know, a pride you know, of people joining the military. It's very hard to see that today, and I think you know, Reagan would be horrified that he understood the greatness of America and in a, a very positive future. You know, you just don't hear that from this administration. Well, and then you have uh, in 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 furtherance of trying to extract more U.S. taxpayer money to send over to Kiev, you have Biden uh, suggesting, and you know people pay attention to this stuff. That hey, look, if uh, we don't provide this, and if Ukraine were to fall a prey to the Russians, and then uh, and Putin were to move into uh, uh, Eastern Europe and 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 invade a NATO country, then we're sending troops. So, you know, it's not going well in Ukraine. Uh, it's com- totally unclear how $61 billion, which is what uh, the president wants, is going to change what's happening on the ground there. And then he's using a threat of deploying troops uh, under the, uh, you know, under the, the, the supposition that Putin would continue to uh, move west into uh, the Baltics and, and the neighboring countries, which is also unclear. But just even that prospect with this administration, I, I want to be deployed to, uh, you know, Estonia under this president. I don't think so. 
Well, especially because at some point you've got to ask, what are the Europeans doing? I mean, it's 80 years since the end of World War II. So I, I just find it very strange that, you know, 80 years later we're still told that, you know, the Europeans are helpless and if we don't protect them, you know, I mean, you know, the world's going to end. And you wonder, well, at what point do they actually get serious? That, uh, you know, and it, you know, that's right. Do you want to, you know, kind of be in a potential confrontation with a nuclear armed power? Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. Commander in chief. It's very hard to be confident the outcome of some kind of a clash with uh, the Russians would be a good one. I mean, based on you know your time and and covering uh, geopolitics for as long as you have, I mean, how do you answer the question uh, that is being that's been debated from the beginning about Putin's uh, designs and whether or not uh, he would settle for the uh, uh, eastern part of Ukraine, the Donbass? Uh, whether he wants to take the entirety of Ukraine and in either situation where he got some or all of it, if he would move into uh, a neighboring country after that? I mean, it's obviously hard to know for sure what he wants. What I'd say is that there's nothing in his history to suggest he has any interest in trying to conquer Europe. I mean, it's a little late for him to try to be the next... uh, you know, Adolf Hitler. I mean, he's been in power for more than 23 years, 24 years, something like 24. And, you know, he has not achieved very much. And if you look at what he consistently said, you know, there's a uniqueness to uh, both Georgia and especially Ukraine. And if you look at a map, you understand why strategically a great concern there. So I think that that's his focus. And quite honestly, even if he wanted to do more, I don't think he could. Look at the how hard it's been for him to, you know, you know, kind of to try to defeat the Ukrainians. The notion that if eventually, you know, after, I don't know, another year, the Ukrainians have to give more territory or something, that he's going to try to suit up his troops and suddenly roll into, I don't know, Poland and Germany. I just don't, I don't believe that. And, you know, the good news is that Poland is actually rearming. They're one of the few European countries that are actually working hard to do it. You know, it's time for the Germans to do it. I mean, the Brits recently said they're going to, reduce their army because, well, they're an island, so why do they need a bigger army? And my reaction is, well, we have an ocean between us. Why do we have to send troops? Come on, guys. Well, and one of the other things, too, that uh, uh, we bring up all the time and we need to continue to is one of the things that we could do to uh, uh, put a real uh, hamper uh, hampering on his designs, whatever they are, is to stop underwriting uh, his empire through our energy or his designs on an empire, through our energy policy. I mean, we've we've enriched Russia and Iran 
because of our domestic energy policy in this administration. And if we moved back in the direction of energy independence and stopped this sort of uh, silliness with respect to fossil fuels, at least for the foreseeable future, then we could sort of de facto defund uh, both the Iranians and the Russians in a significant fashion. Well, absolutely. It makes no sense in this world for us to be hamstringing our own energy production. I mean, it's utter foolishness. And the Europeans are still buying your know, Russian oil. They're just right. buying it through brokers, and Turkish brokers and stuff. So they all talk about how important it is for us to send money to Ukraine, but they're sending plenty of money to Russia. Doug Bondo, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, former special assistant to Reagan, author of Foreign Follies, America's New Global Empire. Doug, thanks as always. Happy to be on. Take care now. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Hallelujah! Holy s***! On AM560. Where's the Tylenol? The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, some revealing reporting over at Block Club Chicago on the migrant shelters in the city. I know it's reported that uh, the Brighton Park plot at 38th and California that was to be a migrant base camp that was scuttled by the state. Uh, The city wasted a million bucks pursuing that, but that's chump change compared to the spend just in the West Loop. Just on three buildings that were converted to migrant housing that are costing the city, according to Block Club Chicago's investigation, as much as $1.3 million a month. And that's just... What? That's just the office buildings. That's just the, the rent. Does that, that doesn't even include staffing and the managers who are making, what, 65 bucks an hour? Doesn't include food, doesn't include services, doesn't mm. include the $150,000 a month management fee that Equitable is getting to manage the migrant shelters, doesn't include how much Relo, which is the company that's uh, doing apparently doing the site selection or the investigation uh, to come up with viable sites. Uh, so doesn't include the contractors, doesn't include the food, services, staff. a month just in rent. And And it it turns out that um, the uh, properties are owned by pretty well politically connected developers in the West Loop. What a surprise. By the way, one of the properties Mm -hmm. uh, is that 2241 South Halstead in Pilsen. Uh, That's owned by Scott Goodman, who's the founding principal of Fairpoint Development. He's pretty well known. Um and this is the one where we had the reporting over the weekend that uh, maybe there's as many as 3,000 migrants in that uh, uh, in that warehouse. We don't it's know. It's the warehouse without windows, and it's one story. It looks very shady, so to speak, if you don't mind me saying. So $1.3 million for these three sites in West Loop. The city has opened 22 other shelters, mostly in private-owned buildings whose owners will be compensated at rates that have yet not uh, have not yet been revealed to the public. We, we, we really don't know. We're just scratching the surface here and trying to figure out how much this is costing. And the city is pretending not to know either. We don't have this. They is, don't because they don't know. I mean, they know. Somebody well, what knows, do you mean? But how do you, not, well, I talked to Alderman Lopez. I talked to him all the time, like, you know, off the air. Because so, well, he said when Mayor Lightfoot was in charge, 
she gave us a detailed budget at the 28th day of every month. He goes, we haven't gotten one to the beginning. And we, nobody we, knows we, how we, much we, we're we, spending. We, we, we don't need a budget. We, we need leases. We need documents. Right, that's I don't, what I I don't need. I don't need, a, I, don't need a, I don't need a budget from an alderman uh, that's you know, thousands of pages. Documents. Just, yes. just, just document every deal. Well, what, you, you have to FOIA you, it. What, you, yeah, I understand how the process works. The point here of the reporting is they have they're pretending like they don't have leases. They're pretending like pay, I don't know. Nobody knows. What do you mean? Somebody signed a lease. Well, so give ABC me the lease. Seven FOIA the information. How much money did you lose on the Brighton Park deal? Nine hundred eighty-four thousand dollars. And Governor Pritzker yesterday. This you guys haven't heard this part. They knew they shouldn't have built on that. Brandon Johnson. Shouldn't have done it. They knew as they were building this shelter before the environmental report came in that it was possible that the environmental report wouldn't allow the building, the completion rather, of the shelter. And so they understood that and they were willing to take that liability on through the state's contract. Not they, us, us taxpayers. Well, what, what, taking whatever. That. I mean, of course, everything's a possibility, whatever. Uh, back to West Loop. Yes. Uh, the Johnson administration finally provided summaries showing the city will pay between $17.90 to $19 per bed per night for the West Loop shelter spaces, which could have 2,350 beds altogether, which adds up to about $1.3 million a month. Equitable Social Solutions gets a fee of $150,000 or more for administrative expenses at these three properties. This is just for three of the properties in the West Loop. We're not talking about the other 19 shelter sites. We don't know. At least we don't have details like this. Um, the uh, uh, more on, on this here, too, just in terms of so the developers, let's I mean, let's name names. And to some extent, I mean, I don't blame the developers because sure. in the city of Chicago, I mean, they they have vacant buildings, vacant commercial buildings. They're not getting the rents that they desire. I think the vacancy in the West Loop is like 25 percent. And um, frankly, um, they've all done business with the city before because the city is predicated on rent seeking behavior. You know, you use my building to house this agency. So I'm doing deals like rental deals, lease deals with city agencies, state agencies, federal agencies. I mean, the biggest employers in the city of Chicago and Cook County, I think four of the top six are governments. Right. Well, that's why they are using our park district stand, because they don't have to pay. The lease. I mean, they have to pay for staff and for food, but they don't have to pay rent. So Phil Denny, who is the self-proclaimed king of the West Loop, he owns more than 30 buildings in West Loop. I mean, his bio is really obnoxious, but uh, the bio of his website, I mean, honestly, I, I got, where is this? I, I got to read this to you. It's just, do. I mean, who, 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 who talks about themselves like this? Work hard, play harder, maybe his credo, but Phil moves like a jungle cat when there's a deal to be made. He didn't build the West Loop, but he sure flipped, switch, flipped the switch on cool. I mean, are you, come on. <laughs> that sounds very kind of, I hate to say it, but a little bit like Trump, but I don't even know if Trump would go so far as to oh, it's so... flip the switch on cool. Can, can he be more of a try hard? I, it, uh, can it, you read on? This is good. He sounds like a door-to-door aluminum siding salesman. Uh, so... But here's the here's the other thing about this, too. Uh-huh. Um, the reporters over at Block Club Chicago looked at what the realtors had listed space uh, for in some of these buildings. And uh, these buildings were not leased out. 
But even then, the spaces would bring about 100 to 170,000 a month if the entire building was leased out. This, for one example, uh, this building at 1640 West Walnut that the King of the West Loop, uh, Denny, owns. But, um, but they're getting multiple. They're getting like two and three x what the market rate is. This is the question we had about, you know, what they were paying over for the 38th and California site. Is that market rate with a ninety thousand dollars a month the lease that they had signed? And can they get out of it? I don't well, know if we have the, the answer to that question yet. We think it's six months. It, they're they're in for six months and they can get out of it. So, um, so for example, th- um, uh, three forty four North Ogden. That's another. That's the other one. Allowed uh, the city to move in as many as twelve hundred people by late September at a cost of eighteen dollars and sixty cents per bed each night. Um, that location had, as of December first, had eleven hundred twenty-eight migrants. That means the city's paying six hundred twenty-nine thousand dollars a month there. That's just the rent piece. The city's paying one hundred seventy months for three hundred migrants staying at the uh, uh, the building on West Lake that uh, Denny owns. And four hundred seventy thousand for more than eight hundred seventy-five people housed at the Walnut property. So um, they they looked at this, um, and then there's a property on Elston. There's as many as thousand people staying there at a cost of twenty-one dollars and eighty cents a night. That's uh, six hundred fifty-four thousand dollars a month. Mm. Where um, is this were, money coming from? Well, well, what do you mean? Where is this coming from? It's, it's obviously coming from the city. Um, but we're broke, but okay. As Mayor, right. Mayor Johnson said yesterday, when I took over this mess, we didn't have a budget in place to house migrants. Okay, so where's where are you getting this money to house migrants then? He doesn't know. He is so in over his He can't even take care of his own household. Did, How did, do they expect him to take care of the city? Did, who, who, who in the city could go line item by line item in a $15 billion budget? I don't know. No I one. Mean, I just Exactly. They just they pay as they go for whatever their priority is immediately. That budget is a fairy tale. That's a fairy tale. They tell uh, they tell the Chicago media who then repeats it to you. Oh, we're going through the budgeting process now. Uh, The city is uh, council is uh, prepared to pass a budget. The city council passed a budget by this vote. Who cares? The budget is a fiction. You, You think they hew to it? I mean, to 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 borrow. I mean, the aphorism that money is fungible. I mean, that it it needs to be amplified exponentially to fully appreciate this. They pay for what their priorities are right now, which is why you have unfunded pension liabilities that are the largest in the country at the state level. And the city is no better. In fact, the city's worse. Just ask the police and fire pension managers. But this is why they don't plan for a, a, a fiscal year much less anything for beyond that. They plan for what I want to spend money on or what I need to spend money on right now for political reasons. Do people not understand this? Where do you live? Oh, the budget. Oh, is this in the budget? Is this what was passed in the budget? The point is he doesn't know what the hell he's doing. Yeah, Nobody so who, does over who there. Does? They can't even pro- who provide does? documents who does in the so city? everybody's got a Who does stuff. in the city? You're so focused on BLM Brandon as the latest totem. Who, who, who in the city is super competent? They know what they're doing. And when have we had that? Not even present. To, to any, at any time period in, in your lifetime. Who do you point to and say, gosh, there was somebody that had their act together. And look at the great job they did running this agency or that agency, much less city government. What a joke. Incompetence is 
built into the price. He doesn't know what he's doing. Lori Lightfoot did. Tiny Dancer did. Richie Daly did. He was a real budgeteer, that Richie Daly. What a great executive. Honestly. This is the problem. Just like they live in the moment with no sort of institutional or historical context, that's how the residents act, too. So they pretend like something is new here rather than just a new manifestation of the same. BLM brand is incompetent. Oh, the Chicago teachers is incompetent. Breaking news. The entire political ruling class is and has been for a half a century. I'm only talking about my lived experience. Well, I'm saying Daly and Rahm Emanuel didn't have to deal with this invasion of our country and of our city of illegals. And just I'm wait. I'm, I'm sorry. Just wait until so- Katie Hobbs starts busting those thousands. I know. I know. That's your there. pat line. I know. That's your pat line. Uh, I don't right. care where they come from. Arizona, Texas, Florida. What does it matter? Well, they're not stopping they, to come. They're going to uh, keep coming. That, that, we had I, eight buses I, I, I yesterday. Know. I know. You know we had eight buses yesterday? Yeah, yes. And one got and, impounded. And one of got impounded. Yes. Yeah, I know. Right. The daily news. The daily grind. Pull back and see a big picture. No, we don't do that. Oh, oh, Rom didn't have this and so on and so forth. Lori Lightfoot didn't have this. They supported Sanctuary City. They sure did, but they, they didn't know the Sanctuary ramifications County. of their actions until they, they were out of office. They No, no, no. They knew. They just didn't have to feel them. It was just a matter of time. That's like saying, I didn't know the ramifications of not funding pensions because they didn't capsize under me. But when they capsize in a decade, they would say, well, the pensions didn't capsize under Brandon Johnson. They capsized under this person. Oh, because the, the previous six mayors had no idea that you're supposed to fund uh, obligations you incur on a real-time basis? Of course they did. N- nothing's on a continuum. Everything just starts anew with a new min- administration. It's not how it is. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. But but this is why we have the city and the state we have. It's all Brandon Johnson's fault. Jordan in Forest Park. You know, uh, we created a lot of incentives for migrants to come to the U.S. We've created incentives for them to stay going to have to create incentives for them to leave. And um, I, I, I know there's already a lot of migrants that are probably uh, uh, unhappy with what's going on right now with where they're living or whatever. I, I suggest the following. I think that you're, we're, we're spending somewhere between two and $300 a day on the migrants. Let's take a portion of that that we're already going to spend no matter what, and let's set up uh, through an international bank, let's set up a, a bank for that person to go back to their home country, they don't have access to all of the money, but perhaps a small amount per month, and get them out of here. Get them out of here. I think a lot of them would take uh, take that offer right away. It may not solve this problem, but I think this would probably start at least somewhat of a flow back to their countries. Pay them to leave. Yeah. I mean, uh, all right. Thanks for the call, Jordan. I mean, it's, it's not a terrible idea. You can throw it out there and have people ignore it but okay sure at least it's an idea i mean i just just back to these west loop properties 629 grand the city's paying for ogden the ogden property that was mentioned several times greater than the 100 to 200 grand the building would have produced in office rents at rates listed online with realtors 
The Denny property, 1640 uh, West Walnut, appears to be two or three times the 100 to 200 grand he would have received each month if he had rented the entire building as his business space. So, of course, in this uh, environment where they're struggling to get uh, commercial renters, the city is still paying two and three X for the space. Of course they are, because that's what the city does, and that's what the city's always done. And now they've paired up with the Archdiocese of Chicago to move into vacant Catholic buildings and schools and churches. Joe in Naperville. Yeah, you know, anybody who says that these people are incompetent are foolish. These people are incompetent. They know exactly what they're doing, and they know exactly how to make money from doing it. So please well, it's a combination. It's a combination of it. Thanks for the call. Some are incompetent and useful idiots, and some know exactly what they're doing, and they're successful rent seekers. Um, I would put the real estate developers on the side of people who know what they're doing because they're the ones getting 2 and 3x market rent for their buildings right now, aren't they? So, yes, you have uh, kleptocrats that are in office and you have rent seekers that are out of office that manipulate the people in office to get what they want. And so you have, just as we talked about yesterday with property taxes, you have a few winners and a lot of losers, mostly losers, but no victims. Tom and Oswego. Hey, Tom. Hello? Yes, Dan, I appreciate when you call the uh, Democrats the Socialist Party, because that's what they are. I I would ask that every time you talk about the city paying for something, really just insert the word taxpayer, because we're the ones paying for this, not the city. It doesn't produce anything. And like the other gentleman caller said, that they know what they're doing. I think a lot of them do know exactly what they're doing. It's sort of an evil knowledge that they have. And they're waiting for the system to collapse, just like the southern border. People for for a year or two says Biden doesn't know what he's doing and he's stupid and they don't know what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. They're letting they're flooding everything and just waiting till it collapses and then they can control everything. Uh, that may be uh, maybe a little crazy thinking, but so far that's the path I see we're taking. Thanks for the call, Tom. And by the way, on this score, just like so many other instances, the city's problems socialize to the entire state because Jelly Belly's on board with this, too. He's come in with state money. Money's fungible at the state level, too. So every Illinois resident is forcibly contributing to this, uh, uh, these arrangements, if you will, for migrants in the city of Chicago. Yes. They don't care. So many and they don't te- care either. So many text messages. Jan and Amy, why are we even letting them off the bus? Uh, keep them in and tell the driver to drive back across the border. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Uh, my, uh, this is uh, from the uh, highlights from or lowlights from the migrants. And again, this is not all the migrants. Venezuela migrant accused of critically stabbing a man at the Grand Red Line station, armed with a butcher knife when police officers arrested him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, and by the way, yeah. um, I know the um, the leafy suburbs, um, many still think they can just look at Chicago as spectators, and again, it won't be visited there. Thanks to funding from the Office of the Attorney General, sure. The Oakbrook Police Department is starting to crack down on shoplifters at the Oakbrook Mall. <laughs> this is supposed really? to be like a, a profile piece for Kwame Raul and Oak Park Police. Just in time for Christmas. They have license plate readers and overview oh. cameras on basically the entire exterior of the mall. It's wonderful. 
Uh, they got a five million dollar grant. Uh, five million. Uh, five million, part of a five million dollar grant made to twenty four communities from the office of the attorney, Illinois Attorney General, because he's such a law and order guy. This is the uh, uh, man who argued for and defended the constitutionality of the original uh, Pritzker purge law, much less 2.0. 175 retail thefts so far in Oak Brook this year. And uh, police are saying it's uh, pretty organized. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, they're yeah. just catching on. Uh, police saying too, there are too many random arrests occurring to think it's not part of a bigger ring. Not many of the arrestees have been willing to talk to the police. But the information we've gathered is they take buses out here. What's interesting is they'll provide addresses and come back as districts of Chicago police in the city huh they're providing police districts as their addresses hmm um the uh oakbrook police thinks that members of an organized retail theft operation may have approached migrants in chicago and offered oh. to pay them to make co- to uh, commit retail thefts oh, it looks like we're gonna have to pay them more to leave if, since you've got uh, burglary rings paying them to steal um hmm so now you have theft rings, like we noted in Lake County, Columbia Nationals, that are enlisting migrants and paying them to come out to the suburbs to steal things. The uh, judges uh, have declined to hold retail thefts uh, suspects pre-trial under the Safety Act. Oh, it applies in Oak Brook, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Illinois state law prohibits local police from handing migrants over to federal immigration. So there's that. Well, they just go back to their police districts or wherever they're living. Yeah. Um, Oak Brook Police saying, uh, we can't worry about legislation. That's out of our control. Indeed it is. It is now. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. America First with Sebastian Gorka. Weekday afternoons at 3 on AM560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. While uh, Harvard President uh, Claudine Gay continues to do damage control after her uh, status as president was affirmed by the board, um, the um, accusations of plagiarism continue to pile up, actually. Uh, Phil Magnus, uh, who writes over at uh, American Economic Institute for Research and other publications, economic historian of sorts. Uh, he's identified another paper that uh, looks very similar to, um, well, another paper that, uh, research paper that precedes work done by Claudine Gay, and the language of the original research looks very similar to what she offers in her research paper but she doesn't cite the original research. That's plagiarism. It's a 2001 paper that was um, offered by uh, scholars Lawrence Bobo and Franklin Gilliam. Bobo's at Harvard. And um, they're put side by side. Chris Rufo actually tweeted it out. The, the The relevant passages are put side by side. And again, we see what appears to be a clear violation of Harvard's plagiarism standard. And this isn't the only one we've had. As I said, this is the fifth such instance that has been presented as evidence of basically a systemic failure to abide Harvard's own plagiarism standard. Uh, Carol Swain, 
was another uh, such person whose work seems to have been lifted by Claudine Gay, uh, also a politi political scientist at uh, Miami, Ohio, um, was angry about the same as this information continues to be unearthed. Not that it matters. It clearly doesn't matter to Harvard, Harvard's Board of Trustees, but it does matter to some of these academics, and, and yeah. starting with those whose work was pilfered, apparently, by Claudine Gay. Carol Swain joins us now. She's a former professor of poli-sci and a professor of law at Vanderbilt. She's the best-selling author, most recently, of The Adversity of Diversity. Carol Swain, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Uh, it's my pleasure. And one of the things that I'd like to make very clear is that my tenured book, the book that got me tenured at Princeton early in the 1990s, was considered pathbreaking. And Claudine Gay lifted two passages from it. But my beef is larger than that because then she went on to build a career around the ideas expressed in the prize-winning book without giving the normal attributions that you give when you're either building on a scholar's work or trying to refute it. It's like I didn't exist. She would have a citation in her bibliography. She would list black faces, black interests, but if you were reading the book, reading her articles, you would never know that she was actually trying to engage questions and issues I raised in my prize-winning book. And normally, you would actually um, discuss the scholar's work to refute it or to affirm it. It's like I didn't exist. So to me, that was a greater harm because in academia, our statute depends on how many citations we get. And if someone is uh, building on your work and, and passing it off as their own, the ideas, this was not direct plagiarism in the articles, but I feel cheated out of citations that would have helped me in my career. Yeah, well, it's another form two? of it's it's another form of academic fraud. Yeah, and, and what two passages did she plagiarize? I would say that they were they were not just made. They were just one where I talk about the uh, I'm discussing actually another scholar the distinction between descriptive uh, representation and substantive representation in. Black faces, black interests, and another where I'm quoting a statistic about the percentage of members of con Congress that get reelected. I mean, that's not anything worth stealing. <laughs> you know, that's data that's easy to get. That's not worth stealing. Uh, and so I, I say the greater harm to me is just the fact that my work was path-breaking. I won three national prizes, the highest prize a political scientist can win cited by lower courts and the U.S. Supreme Court three times, and you would not know that uh, from reading any of her work, even though she did, dealt with congressional representation, descriptive representation, and there are several articles that clearly overlap with my work that merited more than black faces, black interests being listed in the bibliography. And I know that argument's more complex. Some people won't understand it, but the people in academia should. And I blame her committee members, her reviewers, people that did not hold her accountable. And I think some of that had to do with, I became increasingly more conservative over the years. And as I became more conservative, uh, I was being counseled before we knew about 
that before we even have the concept of cancel, and one way to cancel someone is to ignore their work and not cite it. Well, and the point that you, I saw you make um, earlier in the week, too, is that if uh, Claudine Gay wasn't committing this alleged academic fraud all the way along before she got to Harvard when she was uh, an associate professor at Stanford, she wouldn't have got tenure at Stanford. She wouldn't be the president of Harvard. Yes, and I would like someone to go look at her senior thesis because it won a prize. She got a prize for her dissertation and her senior thesis. And and so are you surprised by uh, the indifference to in, in except maybe from a, a handful of professors, including those whose work she seems to have misappropriated? Are you surprised the Harvard Board of Trustees and um, and, and academics in these fields are not saying much uh, in the direction of Claudine Gay about this matter? No, because they created her. She's a product of the, the you know, the most elite of the elite. She went to Phillips Exeter Boarding School. So she's had one of the best educations in America. And then uh, she went to Harvard as an undergraduate, won a prize there, then went to Stanford and got tenure. And the work that she presented for tenure would not normally get a person tenured in the Ivy League because there was nothing uh, significant about the work, nothing pathbreaking, nothing highly original. So she was tenured with a mediocre record and then hired by Harvard. And so to indict her, they would have to indict uh, their faculty members to indict the whole system of the elites. So that's why they're protecting her. But in the meantime, I think it's very demeaning to every uh, person, not just black people who have worked their butts off to try to meet the standards. And all of a sudden, uh, Harvard is trying to change the standards and even giving her an opportunity to go back and revise some of those papers. She gets to do a, a do-over. I've never heard of that. I think it's a disgrace, and if she, and if she really should just resign and go away. And well, I think about my own reactions. I I really um, started off, you know, giving her the benefit of a doubt, thinking it could have been an accident, then realizing how bad it was, feeling sad for her because I knew she was going to get fired, and now I'm quite angry. Well, why do you think she was spared and Liz McGill was fired from Penn? They're different. Uh, some people are saying it's because of Bill Ackerman, the the billionaire that has called for her being fired. But I think it is because she is their Miss DEI, their first ever black president, and they don't like the optics. I don't believe that uh, they want the optics of firing this person for plagiarism or for moral ineptitude. And so they are sort of stuck with her. In the meantime, their brand, which in my opinion is already in the toilet, uh, it continues to slide. And they're devaluing the degrees of all their students. And the Harvard Corporation, they're really hurting their brand for a woman that has been pushed along. She's part of the elite. They're protecting her, but she's getting extra protection because she's black. And, and me... Someone, you know, that came from poverty, worked very hard, uh, and there are millions of people like me. It's unfair to us 
And it's unfair to higher education generally because it really sends the wrong signal to every student in America, whether they're in middle school or high school or college, about uh, standards. And what we see from the left is always double standards. Uh, Eli Steele, the documentarian, son of Shelby, as you know, had a really interesting piece in Newsweek. Uh, and, of course, he has a multiracial background. Uh, he... Um, uh, the piece is why it is, is Claudine Gay is why I never checked the black box, quote unquote. And he writes this. I want to get your reaction for me on a personal level. It was not the uh, the worst part of these life altering encounters, the being confronted with checking the black box. He writes, I knew that if I checked the black box for things like college applications, administrators and corporate executives would feel like they own me that they had opened the doors to their esteemed institutions, and in return, I would be expected to show fealty to their racial politics and ideologies. Checking the black box on college applications would have forced me to enter what I call the minority state of mind, divorcing myself from the larger American identity to embrace a far narrower identity based on the politics of race, and he didn't want to do that. What's your response to that observation? It's very similar to one that Stephen Carter a Yale University professor who was black. He was the uh, offspring of, of black professionals. He did not want to be an affirmative action baby. And I think there are many blacks, like if you feel confident about yourself, you don't want to be a uh, part of the black box. You don't want to check that. And I can tell you back uh, in the 1980s when I was on the job market, they had minority positions where you could apply and compete against other minorities of your group. I refused to apply to any of those positions. I would only apply for American politics positions. That was my area, and I wanted to compete with everyone else. And so the schools that uh, made me offers, and I had numerous offers, I got a signing bonus, they were schools that respected my wishes because I didn't apply to any of the other jobs where I would just be competing among my own group. Carol Swain, former professor of political science and professor of law at Vanderbilt University, also early tenure at Princeton, as you heard her mention. Best-selling author most recently of The Adversity of Diversity, Strike a Blow Against Claudine Gay by picking up the work of Carol Swain this Christmas. How about that? Carol, uh, always good to talk to you. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. You stink. I think you're going to have a good Christmas, all right? I like beef and cheese. You don't smell like Santa. An AM 560. The Answer. George Will. Well, but and but I, I think my point there is bigger than, okay, look what happens because George Will's not in academics. Um, he's reaching a lot more people. I think that's a better example. Um I would point out that Elizabeth Warren historically uh, caucused with libertarians. The the person, if you look at her records, the person she used to suck up to the most was Henry Manny, uh, a giant among libertarians. Obviously, she's changed a lot. Uh, so what do you want to do? Um, our crowd generally doesn't go into academia. Uh, do you want affirmative action for them? Uh, do you think that we should force who, who, schools to no, hire? Who said, who said anything about that? No, of course not. Well, okay. Well, so what would you like? You apparently think it's a problem. That, it is a problem. That, it is a problem. Well, so what would you like? What would you like to do? Um, well, uh, I, I mean, I would like uh, that the uh, conservatives intellects in uh, the academic circles and not just academic circles, but also practitioners 
uh, in the business world who then could have a pathway to teach at places like Harvard or whatever, or the local community college. But they're, and, they uh, and some do, and, and many are, are shunned and shut out because, of course, I mean, the, 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 dominance, the dominance of the left when it comes to everything but the hard sciences, but then they have the administrative dominance over the top of even the hard sciences, which is how they get polluted with the politics of race and identity as we, I mean, the examples are legion. Um, and so there, there, there are smart people who are seeing this and they're also um, presenting a competition, which is good, which is what I want to see, like the University of Austin, Barry Weiss, and the whole collection of academics that are moving in the direction of setting up a new university and all the other potential outlets when corporations start to reduce the bar or reduce I say I should say the credential bar to be uh, an employee, like for example the BA. So that will have an impact. So I, I'm I'm not looking for central planning to be the solution to central planning, but to suggest that you know a twenty to one dominance in the humanities, of left to right, uh, and in most other disciplines on college campuses can, in addition to the per, the administrative personal overlay and the the diversity, equity, and inclusion troops. Um, that 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 doesn't have a cultural impact on America that also jeopardizes our free enterprise system, I think, is very Pollyannish. Well, OK, but where do most of those kids uh, go after they uh, learn all these horrible things on campus? Uh, generally, I think I think there'd be agreement here. They go to New York, uh, San Francisco and Los Angeles. Um, I submit to you that those three cities are easily the most relentlessly capitalist cities on Earth. So I think there's again I'm an optimist and and I, I think to be fair you should be fair to me what do I say in my column I say let markets work as in let people come up with alternatives yeah um, and if and if alums feel that 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 they're promoting uh, communism on campus or anti-Israel or whatever uh, let them close their checkbooks I, I make a specific case stop whining people you you live in the greatest country on earth and let markets work. Yeah, but but the problem. I would point out, no, I, uh, but I, I think it's important to point out where do these kids go and what do they do? What is more relentlessly capitalist and ruthlessly capitalist than Silicon Valley? I can't think of it. Just about every business fails there. If you miss a deal on Wall Street, you're out of your job that day. Uh, Hollywood, you would not. It'd be hard to find a more ruthless business than that. So watch what they do, not what they say. Apparently, they're learning to hate capitalism. Well, they sure don't show it once they leave college. Amy, you wanted to jump oh, in yeah. before well, I go. Well, one progressive councilman in San Francisco is blaming capitalism for homelessness. Uh, of course, there's look in a rich society. Let's agree, there's all sorts of room for stupidity. I would go so far as to say the richer the society, the more stupid people they are. What did von Mises say long ago? He said that wealth creation creates an opportunity for those to demagogue. So my guess is that if the three of us were running the United States, we'd have about 100 Elizabeth Warrens. We'd have 100 uh, Bernie Sanderses. And why? Because we would be for freedom, and in a free society, inequality is massive, and that's a beautiful thing. So, again, we can point to examples of, of idiot people, of course. But what I'm saying is that probably is a sign that people are a lot freer and far more profit-motivated than people want to admit. Yeah, I also think there's a, a, there's a late-to-the-dance recognition of exactly what's going on in these civic and cultural institutions. And so 
Um, I mean, you know, this is a market, too. And I know you're going to give me the imperfect information argument and the market can uh, can address that even uh, in the 11th hour. But um, it, it, it's a problem because of the collusion with big government, uh, the, the one institution that has monopoly power and how the government has insinuated itself into all aspects of life and and is, you know, I mean, it, it, you have quasi government uh uh, operators in the private sector that are further extending the reach of the state. And so there's sort of in a in a in a soft power way where the government obviously is the hammer. So, again, I just say, you know, you have a, a product that's coming out of uh, most colleges that is a, a shadow of a generation or uh, of several generations ago, even a generation ago. And that makes for a less dynamic, less creative, less able uh, society. It also makes for a society that's less respectful of the uh, uh, principles of liberty upon which it was founded. So the prospect of it, those uh, principles being extended to future generations is greatly is more uh, significantly jeopardized. So, I mean, I just I, I, I'm not I'm not saying that you're, you know, uh, oblivious to this. I'm just saying that to look at this in one aspect and say free enterprise and maximum freedom and just the relentless optimism of promoting those things is all we need to address and we can just let these barbarians behave like barbarians despite they have that they have control of all these institutions i just think you can't do that i can't think i don't think you can ignore who is in charge of these institutions and what they are begetting and just say that the free enterprise and the creative set are going to save us well uh, the first thing i would say is Again, what, what, what do you want to do? Um, I, I kind of like to let people hang themselves as they're hanging themselves. And so if they want to say stupid things, I, I, I very much believe, passionately believe in the right for people to be complete idiots and pay for that in the marketplace. And as evidenced by what's happened at Penn this week, by what's happened at Harvard, they're paying for it in the marketplace. The other thing I would point out to you is, come on. People have been c complaining about what they've been te what they're teaching kids at school for as long as there have been colleges. William F. Buckley wrote God and Man in Yale in the 1950s. Are you familiar with yeah. David Lodge? He wrote the book Changing Places about Berkeley in the 1960s. Right. Uh, John LaRue wrote The Handmaid of Desire about massive left-wingerism wing at Stanford in the 1980s. Closing of the American Mind in 1987. I mean, I get it. I've read the books. But When I ran for president of University of Texas in the 1980s on a platform of getting rid of affirmative action, I was shouted down as David Duke. So don't tell me that this is some new thing that we've been ignoring this. This is what I've heard all of my life. My point is, is that people hear it. Yeah, campuses are wildly left wing in that fringe. But most people are there to meet girls and boys and get a job. Walk a campus with me anytime and tell me that it's just full of snowflakes in the fetal position uh, yelling against Israel. And it's just not a serious point of view. Harvard itself that's, that's, is over that, 30 that, 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 Jewish. That is a straw man argument. That's a straw man argument, John. What's a nobody, straw, what's the straw nobody, man argument? Nobody is saying a majority or nobody's saying that there are boys and girls there to meet boys and girls and get jobs on Wall Street or in Hollywood no, or Silicon Valley. Nobody's saying that. They're saying. Oh, no, uh, but I, there is the, oh my God, well, can, can I finish my point? 
Can I finish my point? Sure. Of, of, course, of course we know this has been going on for a long time. Some of us who've been paying attention, and a lot of us haven't been. Ken Griffin gave a half a billion dollars to Harvard before, the, uh, before what transpired after, on that campus after October 7th, and then he's pretending to be shocked. Same thing with Ackman. And so it's, uh, all of these other movers and shakers and elite circles. But, but that's not even the point. The point is that we know from history that it's a committed few that moves things in one direction or the other, that moves things towards freedom or move things towards uh, autocracy. So it doesn't need to be a majority on campus, and it doesn't need to be a majority of the electorate. The mo- it, it, all it needs to be is a motivated minority, and there are motivated minorities that have done unbelievable damage to this country, moving in the direction of autocracy and away from freedom. And that's a fact, too. I would say that these motivated minorities have done a, a horrendously bad job in the United States because we're the richest, most profit-motivated country on earth. So evidently, what they're teaching isn't getting through to kids. And I would just submit right. to you there's a tendency on our side to cherry-pick. And we're seeing it right now. I won't name the name, but there was there's a guy who was canceled last year. He may have been on your show. He was canceled by an elite university in Washington, D.C. He has made a fortune off of this. And let me be clear. I've known him for years. He has been speaking on hundreds of college campuses for years. And, and, and But suddenly, oh, my God, this, these, this a liberal tendency on campuses, yeah, that exists. But it's very fringe. Stephen Hayward, the author of of The Age of Reagan, a committed conservative, what did he say about Berkeley in the 1960s? Yeah, it had this reputation as a hard left wing, but he said, realize that was 5% of the campus. That's just what the media reported on. And I think there's a tendency on our side to cherry pick these awful examples and say, oh my God, look at what's happening, the liberal rot on campus. And I would just say, go visit these schools. Most kids are not like this, and you can see it. And, and so, but what we're here, we're hearing about the fringe, and we certainly hear about it in our media. Um, I, I wanted, I did want to get to this other topic. So let's just let's move to this topic because this is on inflation, and since uh, uh, the Biden administration doesn't seem to understand that when prices uh, increase at a slower pace, they're still increasing. Um, the um, uh, the reaction uh, from the market and from the Fed uh, with respect to the inflation numbers this month is that uh, they've uh, tamed this beast and it's clear sailing ahead. What's your reaction? Uh, well, the dollar's weaker than it's ever been in history. And so I, my problem, and you know this from having had me on in the past, I define inflation as they've historically defined it, a devaluation of the unit. The dollar's the weakest it's ever been. Um, this notion of the Fed taming inflation is kind of a non sequitur. I thought, and and I, I think I think you agree. Uh, the idea yes. that you'd work use price controls to fight to fight inflation seems kind of ridiculous. If you want to fight inflation, just have issue a stable dollar. Um, historically, they just define currencies in terms of gold, and 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 that saved you from inflation. Prices move around all the time. Um, and so I think the problem and, and the sad thing is our side is unwill- is, has made this a political thing. No one's willing to define inflation as what it is. And so Biden, of course, yeah, he's just drooling things that make no sense. But the critics of Biden are, are, are saying similarly nonsensical things about what causes inflation. So I just wish we could have a real discussion of it. And uh, you were critical of um, Friedman's K rule, too, um, just, I mean, just just for a little edification, um, address the um, uh, why you think Friedman 
Well, I mean, I, I sort of know, but but address it anyway. Um, Friedman, you know, who was seen as the uh, one of the great libertarian economist of the 20th century. Uh, and um, he there were some arguable missteps, but he still certainly advanced the the cause for freedom, generally speaking, and economic liberty and free enterprise. But on this issue of uh, moving off the gold standard and Friedman's response to basically a consistent supply, money supply increase on an annualized basis, basically tied to GDP, why is that a bad idea? Uh, because it's the presumption that you can plan the, the, the amount of currency in a system to match production. Uh, no production currency in in a system is is production determined. Uh, why there's lots of dollars in Chicago, uh, very few dollars in Cairo, Illinois. Well, yeah, obviously there's no production going on in Cairo. Tons of it in Chicago, and so the idea that you can plan the amount of money in in a country, a city, on a street is as arrogant as Soviet five-year plans. In in a re, as von Mises long ago said, you never have to worry about the supply of money in an economy. Where there's production, there will always be money. And, and so I'm merely making the point that um, Friedman was a central planner on this subject just as much as, as the Soviets were on, on other things. You don't plan money. You just def- you basically just let people produce, and there will be money. Um, right now, if you go to Venezuela, you better have dollars. The local currency is the boulevard. If you go to North Korea, you better have dollars, even though the local currency is the want. Did the Fed drop that money supply there a la Friedman? No, no. Where there's where there's goods to be traded, there's always good money. Oh, that's how Wall Street make, gets makes its money. That's how banks make their money is they finance the movement of real goods and services. And so I just think it's a mistake that our sides become so focused on presuming to know uh, what the the supply of money should be, how much money should be circulating. Markets do that for us. So should Mele be uh, uh, tying the uh, pay, the Argentinian peso to the gold standard rather than dollarizing the economy? Well, it's a great question. I argued in a column the week before last. I said Malay doesn't need to bother to dollarize. Argentina's already dollarized. So what I would suggest is just legalize money because the dollar already uh, referees most transactions in Argentina. Why would you then bring the state in to decree what's already what's already real? And so, yeah, in a perfect world um, – they would just put the peso, define it in terms of gold, and then once you do that, you let markets set the supply of, of pesos. And if they go free market, rest assured, the amount of pesos circulated in Argentina will skyrocket because where there's lots of production, there's lots of money. Again, lots of dollars in Chicago, very few in Cairo, Illinois. And so it'd be no different in Argentina. I think the mistake is always that we presume a role for the state here. Uh, no, we wouldn't tell the st- we wouldn't have the state decide how many computers circulate in the economy. I mean, just to presume the state can decide how much money circulates is every bit as foolhardy. John Tamney, editor of RealClearMarkets.com, director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks, author of The Money Confusion, How Illiteracy About Currencies and Inflation Sets the Stage for the Crypto Revolution, if Jamie Dimon allows it. Uh, John, Tom, John Tamney, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me as always. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, Amy, you see uh, L.A. is imitating Chicago this time around. We were ahead of the learning curve. We had uh, pro-Hamas protesters shut down the Kennedy before they had uh, pro-Hamas protesters shut down 110. 
about that? Uh, Leo Leibovitz is the editor-at-large for Tablet, and uh, he joins us now. Leo, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Hello. Um, so I wanted to get you in this uh, discussion we were just having with John Tammany from RealClearMarkets.com about college campuses, because um, you uh, you were teaching at NYU for a time, weren't you? Uh, sadly, I was. Made some <laughs> bad life choices. Yeah, right. So so here's uh, the argument as it goes from Tammany um, and, and some others. Um, you know, conservatives or, or people who are classical liberals and believe that the university should be a free marketplace of ideas and so forth. Um, don't be so concerned. It's We're overwrought when it comes to what's happening on college campuses, whether it's uh, uh, DEI being the uh, the hiring protocol or whether it's uh, universities that spawn uh, pro-terrorist undergrads, as we've seen since the October 7th attack. The, uh, the market, let the market work. Uh, these universities will fall under their own weight. They'll, you know, proverbially hang themselves. And uh, the competitors, particularly in the digital age, that will spring up to replace the Harvards and the Pens and the MITs of the world. And so as they diminish their product, it provides incentive for somebody else to enter and provide a better product. And so we shouldn't spend so much time hand-wringing over what the product that we're seeing on display coming from the Ivy League or other elite universities is. What's your view? Well, I, I wish, you know, it's it's almost Christmas time. I wish I could agree with uh, such a rosy, cheerful uh, assessment of reality. But I, I want to respond by sticking to the same framework because I think it's a good, smart framework, strictly the framework of money. Here's one number that I can't stop thinking about. In 2001, the cost of university education was 23% of the median annual earnings in America, which is high but manageable. By 2011, that number, one decade later, that number had reached 38%. Student debt doubled. That number continues to rise and rise and rise. The economic factor is precisely why I don't agree with Mr. Tammy's solution, because if you look at what happened to, college, uh, to colleges and universities in America in the last you know, decade and a half or so, you would be shocked but perhaps not surprised to learn that they became really big businesses you know nyu for example is basically an arby they sell franchises like mcdonald's or a wendy's yeah. you know you mm-hmm. have nyu in the emirates nyu in shanghai no problem if you have a extension few campuses dollars, and yeah right exactly right now that is a really hard proposition chinese money emirati money that is money that's really 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 hard for the american marketplace uh, of ideas and of dollars to to grapple with. So you're seeing these universities grow larger, grow wealthier, and grow into even more malicious, pugnacious uh, elements in our society. As you said, educating, terror-supporting young Americans. It's unbelievable. Well, right. And, and it also, I mean, so... Uh... You know, whether you wish it were different or not, it's it, the reality is that uh, many people from these elite universities are going to go into um, positions of influence and authority uh-huh. in government and out of government. And when you have people um, behaving the way that they do, who are in charge of our cultural and civic institutions and much of our government, you know, very state by state from some to some respect, but still. Um, then you're creating a social division, and that doesn't make for a stable society. 
And that doesn't make for a, uh, a particularly uh, uh, welcoming environment to the free enterprise system. And I think m- maybe there's a you know an inability to connect some dots here. Like these these uh, systems don't interact separately; that they're necessarily intertwined. They're completely intertwined. And look, this is the thing. I think it's really kind of difficult but essential to understand. When you look, you, you started off the segment by saying, like, pro-Hamas demonstrations in L.A., pro-Hamas demonstrations in Chicago. You would stop and you would think that if this was truly just a small skirmish between two faraway nations in some dusty corner of the world in the Middle East, there would be really a reason to focus so much attention on shutting down major American thoroughfares or trying to burn the Christmas tree at Rockefeller Center or disrupt the Macy's uh, Thanksgiving Day Parade. The truth is that the, the real goal of, of the so-called, you know, Palestinian liberation movement isn't necessarily just the eradication of Israel. It's basically the eradication of the United States. It's exactly the disruption of our fundamental way of life, which is why the universities and these institutions are so important. It's important to them to raise a whole new generation of people who actually fundamentally and foundationally don't believe that free markets, free ideas, you know, religious liberties, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, all the values we hold so dear are important. Uh, and, you know, they marched, as the saying goes, uh, they marched on the English department. Uh, they, they did very well for themselves because they did succeed in raising a whole generation of people who, as exactly as you said, are going to elite um, positions after they're graduating, who foundationally and fundamentally dislike this country and everything about it. Yeah, but yeah. also, too, I mean, it's amazing. All the Ukrainian flags in our neighborhood now are being replaced with Palestinian flags. But the thing that's disconcerting to a lot of people is now we're starting to see the Hamas flag. And that's mm-hmm. different than the Palestinian flag. So can you explain that? Well, you know, it is and it isn't. Uh, first of all, when you just look at it on the surface, you say to yourself, okay, yes, well, I understand uh, one is a terrorist organization designated as a terrorist organization by the State Department in 1997. The other is some amorphous thing, some entity, uh, people who are, you know, wishing for a state, et cetera, et cetera. But if you look at Gaza and you look at Gaza in the last 18 years since Israel withdrew completely and gave, you know, the Palestinian Authority complete control, over Gaza. Gaza, controlled by Hamas for more than a decade now, is a state for every intended purpose. It is a Palestinian state. It has its own, you know, army. It has its own municipal states. It has everything that it needs. Controls borders. It has everything that it needs. Uh, and so it is now decided to commit itself uh, to war, not just against Israel, but against uh, everything that we hold dear here in this country. And so to me, when I see these two flags, there's really just a very minute difference between the so-called Free Palestine cause and I Heart Hamas cause. They're essentially the same thing. Well, and the, the, the um, description you just provided really goes to uh, the, the conversation we're having about American culture, too, uh, and America's role in the world. It's sort of this folly that, that a lot of free market conservatives, uh, ostensibly like me, um, subscribe to, that um, if we're peaceful pluralists, we don't have to worry about totalitarians, um, right. but but that that um, ignores the fact that totalitarians can be expansionist in orientation. They can come for the peaceful pluralists, and that uh, leads me to this piece that you wrote in the the journal, which I enjoy because I always like to you know get historical examples that uh, are relevant today, the history we don't know. Um, tell us about the uh, Maccabean Revolt and how that is relevant today. 
Well, you know, one one uh, one bright day uh, many years ago, uh, this was under the Seleucid Empire, the um, sort of you know the the, the successors to the Greeks. Uh, they decided that uh, they want to practice uh, something very akin to the you know kind of like globalist vision uh, of of the American progressive left, which means we're going to espouse these ideas of uh, you know kind of diversity and inclusion and and equity, but in fact we're just going to ask everyone to succumb to the exact same cultural belief system. And they came to the Jews and they said, well, now we need for you to virtue signal uh, and, and, you know, sacrifice to Zeus and tell us that you believe the same thing that everyone else believes, basically the ancient equivalent of changing your profile uh, on Facebook to the Ukrainian flag or, <laughs> you know, putting up one of those hate has no home here signs. Uh, and so the Jews, God bless, and said, you know, we're not going to do this. And a, a priest named Matitiao, Matitiaius, said, not only am I not going to do this, but if you're going to force me to do this, I am going to respond forcefully. Uh, and so he killed not only the fellow Jew who was about to happily uh, make the sacrifice, but also the Seleucid, the Greek uh, kind of high officer, sparked a, a major war uh, against the empire, which the Jews, though they were small, uh, yet feisty, miraculously won. They reclaimed the temple. They purified. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.